Both of today's readings feature interventions, and both of them are about a rejection of God. In 1 Samuel 8, we have a situation in Israel that takes place before the beginning of the monarchy. The people of Israel had been freed from slavery in Egypt by their God. We heard a bit of that story from the Torah, the first books of the Jewish scripture, earlier this year during the season of Lent. But in the story, living free turns out to be not so easy. The book of Judges illustrates what it was like living in a free Israel without a king. And the perspective of that book is that things were bad. The God of Israel raises up judges to lead the free tribes of Israel. But some of them are good and some of them are bad. And everyone just does what they think is good because they're free to do so. There's a lot of stories of violence and abuse in the book of Judges, and often the violence and abuse occurs between the different tribes. The point of the book seems to be to show how bad things were when Israel didn't have a king. And it seems like there's a well-justified desire for safety and stability behind the text. But in today's reading, we hear the other side of the argument. Israel is still a group of free tribes but leaders have continued to emerge. Samuel is the current priest and prophet of the God of Israel, and it seems like he's set his sons up to be his successors. So maybe a hereditary monarchy is actually beginning to emerge. Samuel's sons are being appointed as judges, but they're not considered very honest judges, and the people don't want them to rule over them when Samuel dies. This request for a king is also a rejection of the God of Israel, because up until that point, the idea had been that they had no king because they were ruled directly by their God, unlike the other nations who said that their rulers were representatives of their gods, giving divine authority to everything they did. Naturally, Samuel, as God's messenger, is affronted by this. The way Samuel is describing it, it's like they're saying that even though the God of Israel freed them from slavery under a tyrannical God king in Egypt so that they could live as a free people, they've tasted freedom and they would just want to go back to slavery. They want to put a tyrant over themselves who Samuel says will make them work as slaves, will take their produce, will exploit the women for sex and will send the men to die in wars. If we read the books, of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we'll find that that's exactly the kind of stuff that the kings do. Saul, David, Solomon, and most of the kings who follow them are shown treating the people in these ways. Of course, when we listen to Samuel's warning, we need to remember that he has a bit of a conflict of interest because of the elders' request, conflicts with the plans that he seems to have for his sons. We might expect that the God of Israel would be angry about being rejected in this way. But in the story, God seems to be hurt and concerned for Israel, willing to stay with them as they choose something different to what God had hoped for them. In the history of Christian theology, God has often been described as this kind of, uh, the words are the unmoved mover. And it's talking about a distinct force that impacts the world, but cannot be impacted in return. This understanding of the unmoved mover 
has often led to us thinking of God as someone who cannot be affected or changed by human actions. But that's not the understanding here. God seems to be moved. The depiction of God we see in this story is of someone who can be hurt by human actions and decisions. A God who can be swayed by human requests, even requests that God doesn't actually agree with. This is a picture of God sticking with human beings, willing to stay with them even as they suffer under the rule of a king. Just as the God of Israel was with them when they suffered under tyranny in Egypt. If we fast forward the story, Israel does get a king, and the kingdom lasts for a few generations before it splits. And eventually both kingdoms are conquered. First they're ruled by Assyria, then Babylon defeats Assyria and takes over. Then Persia takes over the place of Babylon. Then they're taken over by Alexander the Great's Macedonian Empire, which is split into smaller kingdoms itself after he dies. By the time of our gospel story, the Jewish people are being ruled and oppressed by Rome. At the beginning of Mark's story, as we heard during the season of Lent, Jesus has been preaching in the synagogue with an, the, an authority that the scribes are said to lack. He's also been treating people who were ill and he's been freeing people from spiritual torment. When this is questioned, he goes one further, even claiming that he can release people from sin. We can consider all of this a continuation of God's liberating focus from the Jewish scripture. Jesus chooses 12 disciples, reminding us of the 12 free tribes of Israel. It's almost as though he's seeking to reboot Israel and see if Israel can live as free tribes again. However, there are folks who don't want this happening. They probably have understandable reasons. They probably want to maintain a level of certainty and stability and safety, even if it keeps others under oppression. The scribes, who are threatened by Jesus' greater authority, try to demonise him, but he quickly shows that their accusations don't make sense. And his own family tries to stage an intervention to keep him out of trouble. They try to minimise the threat by suggesting there's a mental illness behind his revolutionary action. But instead of going with them and returning to his proper place in his family's household, he invites them into a new household, a new family. One of the things that's often stuck in people's minds from reading this has been the talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit and the idea that this is such a bad sin that God will not forgive it. I can remember reading about this as a young Christian and worrying about what the sin might be and whether I might have committed it without even knowing. I appreciated that when I talked to a minister about it, he reassured me that if I was concerned about it, I wouldn't have committed it. But I still didn't understand what Jesus was referring to. I think we have a clue as to what Jesus is talking about here, because he says, in the same statement that whatever blasphemies someone says can be forgiven. It seems as though he's referring to what the scribes have done, saying that the liberating work of God is evil. By doing that, they've rejected it. Because of that, they're choosing themselves to reject the liberation that Jesus offers. Just like in the Jewish scripture reading, 
God's allowing people to reject the path of liberation if that's what they choose. And sometimes that's what we've done as a church. Throughout the history of the church, we've sadly resisted God's liberation, supporting slavery, supporting apartheid in South Africa in the, and in these lands that we now call Australia, promoting homophobia, helping to keep women from being treated as equal to men. We need to be always considering whether we're moving with God's efforts to liberate the world or whether we're helping to keep the world under oppression. Where we see movements of li for liberation in the world, we should support them, knowing that's the kind of business that God is on about. Let's take a moment now to consider where God is at work liberating the world today.